Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. If the release of If Beale Street Could Talk gave us a much needed excuse to get Barry Jenkins onto our screen music podcast soundtracking, then it also provided the perfect opportunity to invite his composer, the fantastic Nicholas Brutel, back for a second time. Nicholas' turn in episode 46 was an absolute delight, illuminating the nuances of his Oscar-nominated score for Moonlight in ways that were quite beyond anything we'd imagined. His work on Beale Street is equally layered, encapsulating with its mournful strings and wistful horns the old adage that the course of true love never runs smooth. It is from start to finish gut-wrenchingly beautiful and has quite rightly seen him nominated by the Academy again. Now at the time of recording we don't know if he landed the gong but he'd certainly make a worthy winner. We also discuss his work on Adam McKay's Vice 2, a film with a mere eight Oscar nominations and Battle of the Sexies which was directed by former guests on the show Valerie Farris and Jonathan Dayton. But we begin with Beale Street and in keeping with the central theme of the movie several of the cues are named after Greek words for love including the opening piece we're going to play for you now, Agape. Welcome back to Soundtracking. Yes. Episode 46 you were on, and we're now on wow. like 100 and... 
Nearly 130, I think. Wow, so. congratulations. Thanks. Congratulations to you. Are you kidding? Thank you. Well, I'm so happy to be back here talking to you. Um, this is great. So great. We, we spoke to Barry a couple of weeks ago, but you haven't. You said you deliberately haven't listened, which is probably a good thing. I didn't. Yeah, exactly. I didn't want to like have any sense of where you guys <laughs> musically had journeyed to or anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, right now, there's a wonderful kind of world of celebration for you in terms of two films that are being recognized. You know, Beale Street Could Talk, the most exquisite score that you've created as well, but okay. Vice as well. And this continuing relationship that you have with these two directors specifically. Yes. Congratulations on both those. So, Thank you. So different, very different so things. So different, which is, which is what's so exciting, I think, because, you know, every movie's different. Yeah. Every, every movie should be different. And uh, I think it's an amazing thing when I get to work with two such incredible directors who each have their own unique lens. Yeah. Um, and that's An the joy of it. Exactly. But you know what's what's amazing is they both are similar in the sense that they're both such collaborators. Yeah. And they are both so into that process of close collaboration. Mm -hmm. So in some ways they're very similar, which is maybe why we, we all get along so well. Well, let's start with If Bill Street Could Talk, if that's all right. And it was wonderful to chat to Barry about about so many things. And he it was great hearing about how he'll give you the script and yes. then you will interpret that. It was great. He said something about, you know, if it's about the performances that the actors give that, yes. that really shape Nicholas's score. And so if it hadn't been Regina King playing that yeah. part, the score would have been different. 100% different. I and, love that. And it's, really, and it's really true because there's these different moments when you're writing music especially if you get the opportunity to come in early you write different music when you're imagining the film and then when you get the performances and you get the footage and you start seeing things you then directly respond to that so you know i think one of the one of the lucky things that i've had the chance to do is to you know with both adam and with barry to get involved early yeah. where you know with with beale street i read the book read the script and started talking to barry about it before he shot the film so i had this time where mm -hmm. you know both of us have, have even said you know there are certain ideas that wouldn't have been possible if we didn't have that time you come up with certain ideas, especially I do when I'm just imagining things, and uh -huh. you don't know if they're going to work. Yeah. You really, you know, and, and in the case of Beale Street, I don't know if he talked to you about this, but the first things he said to me uh, were he said he was imagining that the, the score might have the sounds of brass and horns. Mm -hmm. So I went off and started experimenting with, you know, flugelhorns and trumpets and French mm -hmm. horns and cornet, and I wrote some music. You know, this was like while he was shooting. Yeah. And then when I saw some of the early footage, we put it up against the picture, and on its own, he loved the music. He was actually really, really into this piece of music. But with, with the picture, it just wasn't quite there. It was yeah. missing something. And so we then went on this journey where we, we discovered that there was the sound of strings, which for us really was that feeling of love. And in particular, it's the sound of cellos.
Whereas in Moonlight, the featured instrument in a lot of ways is the violin. Right. You know, it's this very, very virtuosic, beautiful violin played by Tim Fain. In Beale Street, it's the cello, which is really the centerpiece of that you know, the symbol of love. And that's actually played by my wife, Caitlin Sullivan. Oh so gosh. she is, you know, she, her, her cello playing became the sound of this evolution of love. And the film explores all these different kinds of love. There's that feeling of divine, unconditional love. Yeah. There's that feeling of romantic love. There's that feeling of the love that, you know, parents have for their children. Yeah. And each piece that focused on love in the movie, we actually named after the ancient Greek words for the phases of love. So there is this piece, agape, eros, storge, philia, and there's very conscious kind of channeling of that idea. But with what you were saying about responding to performances, it's so true. I mean, Regina's performance is incredible. You know, there's that sequence with, you know, when Brian Tyree Henry is, you know, speaking to Stefan about his his unjust imprisonment. And there's this moment of the realization in the character of Fanny's eyes of what that horror could be. Mm. And those performances are what I then see and in talking to Barry, you know, we go through this journey of imagining the emotion that we want the movie to feel like. And I think the key thing from Barry's perspective is the music isn't there to tell you how to feel. Yeah. Our job isn't to like push you and say, here, if this is sad. Yeah. And actually, the moment that the music ever does that, we're both really like, that's, that's, Stop. Not, that's not right. Because you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. we feel it right away. It doesn't feel like it's organic to yeah, the it's film. Manipulating exactly. It's not mm. inside the movie. And what Barry said to me was, he said, you know, the music should feel like the experience of feeling. It should yeah. actually feel like their internal experience. We're trying to replicate that experience. So you feel horror. We're not telling you to feel horror. Yeah. We want you to actually feel horror.
you know, similarly, there's a, a sequence later in the film when Fani is remembering himself with his art sculpting. Yeah, and it's body in detail. That, that scene was a scene. huge one. And and what's what what one of the wonderful things that that Barry does is he'll always up front he'll tell me when he thinks something is really going to be a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> and that sequence, I remember, the one it was one of the first things he said. He was like, "That's going to be a tough one." <laughs> He's like, "We have to figure that out." He's like, "Good luck." Exactly. So that was one where um, the goal there was. This is a, you know, the camera is swirling, the mm. smoke is swirling, yeah. his memories and his emotions are swirling. And so the music, in a way, was trying, hopefully, to convey this feeling of the ephemerality of our thoughts and our dreams and our lives and things, you know, almost like coming in and, and floating away. In a sense, I think dreams are, you know, dreams are ethereal. They yeah. are immaterial in a way. And, you know, what you're hearing there is actually a, a, a very, very complex saxophone improvisation on the music of when they first make love. So you're hearing this saxophone improvisation on Eros yeah. from earlier in the film.
while that's happening, you're hearing many of the different themes of the film, the actual moments of audio sort of coming in and out. So you're hearing actually the first chords. The track starts with those first cello chords of Eden right at the very beginning of the movie. And then you hear some of the different melodies and different instruments. So the hope was this kind of like, you know, you're in Fani's state of mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that you do so cleverly. It's not as straightforward as of writing a piece of music for each piece of vision that needs music. It's about connection with those scenes. And I, I was talking to Barry in particular about, you know, this love story between these two people. And when their theme kind of comes in, in whatever shape or form it is there, it makes you feel comfortable. It makes you feel the love almost when you hear that come back. And it makes you feel... Okay. That's really lovely to hear because I think there is a sense of comfort and those pieces of music, it's really like we're saying, you know, they should feel that way. Yeah. They should feel like what they are trying to represent. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think there is that sense of there's an element in love of it feels like you're home. Yeah. You know, it feels like you are comfortable. Everything's you're where you okay. are supposed to be, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think that in particular, like at the very beginning of the movie, one of the things that Barry said to me was, we need to feel joy. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of joy where it's like, it's a physical feeling, mm-hmm. you know? It's a really internal, powerful emotion. And um, I think there's something in the emotions in the film, though, where every very strong emotion also contains within it its opposite. Yeah. Whereas joy is joy because it doesn't last forever. So it's even more special because you know you won't always have it. Yeah. And I think that's something, you know, sometimes the happiest music can feel like the saddest music in that way.
that I think really resonates in the kind of jazz world as well that Barry kind of wanted yes. to explore through the history and the connection with Mr. Baldwin, as he always referred to him. Yes. I love that he always refers oh, to him yes. as Mr. Baldwin. Indeed. You know, in terms of, you know, his father was a jazz man and, and mm -hmm. you know, and, and all that world. But it not feeling like, oh, it's a jazz score. It's not right. at all. But you can feel the rhythm of it at times. The complication that jazz sometimes has where it takes you in another direction. That's a great point because, in fact, I think one of the most beautiful elements of jazz is the harmonies. And obviously, notes are notes. You know, the 12, these 12 notes exist. <laughs> but... Jazz really was one of the first forms to really explore how far you go in harmony. Classical music in the 20th century obviously got very avant-garde, but I think jazz, through emotion and through focusing on where chords can go, to me that took harmony to maybe some of its most beautiful places in history where you know, you're taking chords like seventh chords, which is really sort of the essence of jazz harmonies, and you're even going further. You're going to ninth chords, eleventh chords, thirteenth, you know, and you're adding these extra harmonies to these notes. Mm -hmm. And literally the harmonies are more complex you know they are richer and i think that one of the things that i thought about doing in the score was imagining okay what if i took these sorts of complex jazz harmonies but for example there's a piece encomium which you hear when they're in the restaurant mm -hmm. and it's it's that that melody of love what if i took those kinds of harmonies but i almost wrote them in a like 19th century chamber music kind of you know i'm taking it's a string ensemble, mm -hmm. and you're hearing this string ensemble playing a piece of music, but it's with these jazz harmonies. So those were the kinds of things where I think, you know, like you said, we weren't, it wasn't an overt jazz quote-unquote score, yeah. but at the same time, obviously there is that connection yeah. to mid-20th century and to jazz and to hopefully that world, whereas at the same time there are these beautiful pieces that are playing on the record players, mm. you know, I mean, we hear Blue and Green, oh. Miles Davis, we, we hear yeah. I Wish I Knew, John Coltrane, you know, so we are very consciously referring to a world as well. Does Barry have discussions with you about those choices? Because they're very personal choices to him, those needle drops that he has, either the ones that are within the narrative or if he, you know, has something that's that's just there. Mm -hmm. At what point are you aware that he's, you know, he's thinking of that? And we had a very funny conversation thinking about, those things, about, yeah. about the financial side of things as well. Going, oh, yeah. Okay, we can only afford you know, one to... Al Green track. Or, you know, it's kind of like... <laughs> always <laughs> always an equation. Always an equation. <laughs> yeah. I think that, uh, you know, in, in Moonlight, he wrote in 
for example, the Barbara Lewis, you know, Hello Stranger, that was in the script. He actually shot that scene playing the music, which is very dangerous. (laughs) But he knew he wanted that and he needed, needed that. Hello, stranger. It seems so good to see you back again. How long has it been? It seems like a mighty long time. It seems like a mighty long time. So glad you stopped by to say hello to me. Remember that's the way it used to be. Seems like a mighty long time. Chubab, chubab, my baby. It seems like a mighty long time. With If Beale Street Could Talk, there weren't any of those in the script. But the earliest cuts of the film that I that I received already had some of these choices in there. Yeah. And, you know, as you're saying, I mean, it's definitely a, it's always an exploration to see if you're able to get the rights to a certain piece of music. But you know, I never really talked to Barry about his choices of those. He yeah. has amazing instincts with that. I think if there's really a conversation, sometimes it's should this scene have score or should this scene have score and source? Yeah. You know, or that that's kind of the conversation mm. where, for example, in particular with um the sequence with Daniel and, and Fani. Initially, when I saw that scene, it only had the source, the, the Miles Davis Blue and Green was playing on the record player. through this conversation that we were having about what is, you know, what is the sound of injustice? And in a moment like that, do you score it? Because if you do, you have to be very, very careful and very conscious of how and why you're doing that. Yeah. And initially, you know, there was no score. That, that was a moment of powerful realism. And yet, after we had figured out some of those moments of love and joy, 
in those sequences of injustice, both of us, I think, felt we could, ha we wanted to feel the horror and the hellishness of that injustice. And this is one of those things with Barry where he's so open to exploring things. You know, I, I had this idea of, well, what if I, you know, maybe it's a crazy idea, Barry. You know, <laughs> but what if I, what if I actually take the elements of the Eros piece where we see Tish and Fanny first making love, and what if I took those elements and I distorted them and bent them and made them sound hellish? And he, he always says, he says, show me, Dr. Bertel. <laughs> <laughs> so he always says, show me. And I'm, and, and I'm I, you know, I, it, it's so exhilarating because, you know, it's not about being right or wrong. It's not like, you know, we're just looking for something that connects yeah. with the picture and that works for us and that, and that feels right. You know, and if something doesn't work, what's wonderful is it's always a constructive process. If something doesn't work, it tells us, something about the movie yeah. it says no that's not part of this world yeah um and so we're very honest with ourselves about like is something correct but when we did that uh we started feeling that there was this idea of breaking the music and that that represented injustice it was the harming of the love that you literally are harming these stems yeah uh and barry would say how do we break it Let's break it. <laughs> and and then what happened was there's this piece of score that emerges during this conversation. And Barry said, well, what if we don't stop the miles? What if the miles keeps playing? And that was this thing where yeah. you have both going on. And what I did was I took the blue and green and started running it through this very long-tailed reverb. Uh, you know, it's on the record yeah. player, but then it starts feeling almost you know, like your sense of perception or time and yeah. space is changing. And so both of those things are going on where as you start going into more of a, a, a different headspace, that's when the horror starts emerging from almost underneath yeah. the table. And that continues growing and growing until Tish comes back in. And the moment she comes back in, immediately the score stops and immediately all the reverb vanishes from the blue and green and you are fully back in reality. Yeah. It's amazing.
the other brilliant thing that you've done is kind of you know writing violin parts but playing them on horn or vice versa that kind of thing as well yes. which is you know it's it's just it's, it sounds like a really simple thing to do but the effect of it is just incredible well that's interesting you said because we you know that idea a lot of these ideas are almost like hypotheses you know <laughs> like what if we did that you know and I, I was writing this piece so the brass piece for example that I initially played for Barry that that was missing something you know that piece the harmonies and the melody of that piece are throughout the movie and yet the piece that piece is not in the movie so in a way it was almost like a mold of a sculpture that you you have to jettison in order to mm -hmm. get to yeah. the ultimate sculpture and we put that track as a bonus track on the album it's called Harlem Aria so that's actually the first thing I played for Barry But what we discovered was if I took these brass ideas that I had written, played them on cellos, all of a sudden it just felt like it was part of the world mm -hmm. and it felt like love to us. That's also sort of the, the continual fascination with the possibilities of music, which is that we don't know. We have no idea, honestly. Like we are experimenting. I intellectually could say, oh, I could play that on cellos, but <laughs> I don't really know how that's going to feel until I do it. <laughs> And so that's the thing where all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, that really feels – and it feels so different. Mm. That's what's so crazy about music. Like the same notes, the same chords, but you play them on a different it's instrument different. and they are it's a completely different mm. piece. So I think that also reaffirms that instrumentation, orchestration, those things are part of composition. If I play a note on a piano or if I play a note on a cello, they're the same note, but they're different notes. Mm -hmm. they're real, it's a completely different experience. They f affect you physically so differently. Completely yeah. differently. Thank you. 
by the time people hear this, you may well have won a BAFTA. Oh. You may well have won an Oscar, which is amazing. I am honoured to be, be so, a part of this. You must be so thrilled, though, that, that you know Moonlight obviously got recognition. I hear so many people talking about the score for If Beale Street and just Thank terms you. of how it just cuts through and it really resonates Thank you. with them. So you must be really thrilled by the response and the wins that it's had already. It's been incredible. I mean, when Barry and I are working on this, I think we're so in our own space with it mm -hmm. um, that we can't even really imagine what will happen to it. We're, yeah. we're so close to it in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. And we really, we do take it so seriously. I mean, I won't stop until I feel we've reached a place where the sound is what Barry hopes for in his film, mm -hmm. you know? Because that's really my goal. My goal is how do I try to create a musical landscape that feels like the ideal sort of musical, emotional world that the director is looking for. And in this case, you know, Barry is fully my guide. I'm listening to him, I'm receiving what he is is seeking. Yeah. And um, it's a it's a very, you know, I used I think I used the word mystical before, but it is this kind of mystical process where we're we're searching for things, you know? Yeah. And we're feeling things and like our entire path is following those feelings from scene to scene and then sort of zooming out and watching the movie yeah. and seeing if those things you know, <laughs> yeah. connect in a way. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, when it finally gets out there and people respond to it, you know, that is this very, very powerful feeling because we are sort of sharing our own emotions. And I think what that means is that people have felt what we were feeling. Yeah. Is it a similar way of working with Adam? It is, it is. I mean, the interesting thing is this, the stories that Adam's telling, you know, the big short or oh vice are so, are very different stories. He's, I mean, you know. <laughs> oh, and talking about the performances as well, and Christian Bale does Dick Cheney better than Dick Cheney does Dick Cheney. It's, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of amazing. And, and Christian Bale, I mean, he is another person. You know, I had the chance to see him on set. Did you? Yeah, acting. And it was stunning because when you finally <laughs> talk to Christian after the film is done yeah. and you're talking to Christian, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, you're talking to a very different person, person. Yeah. you know? And his whole energy changes. It's awe-inspiring to see someone, to see an artist so inhabit and so transform uh, into another person. What do you say? I want you to be my VP. I want you. You're my vice. Well, George, I, uh, I'm the CEO of a large company. And I have been Secretary of Defense. And I have been White House Chief of Staff. The vice presidency is a mostly symbolic job. Uh -huh. However, if we came to a uh, different understanding, I can handle the more mundane jobs overseeing bureaucracy, military, energy, and uh, foreign policy. Yeah, right. Is there a script? Because I know that Adam really loves to improvise and encourage improvisation. Yeah. So I imagine for you that makes it slightly tricky in that he might give you a script, but then 
the finished thing is very different from what well, you've read. It's or? interesting, you know, I think that um, I didn't work on Adam's earlier comedies. I mean, I'm the hugest fan of those comedies. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was a fan before yeah. I ever had the chance to meet Adam. Um, but on Vice, you know, um, a lot of that was in the script. He yeah. um, and, I, and I had the luck as well, you know, of since I worked on The Big Short, I started talking to Adam about Vice while he was writing the script. Amazing. So I was able to talk to him from a very early stage about his his own senses of where the the film might go and you know from early on Adam knew that that the the score should have this epic scope because one of the things he said was he was like this is such a huge story you know not only is it the story of Dick Cheney this man and his rise through Washington and the repercussions of his actions but it's really the story of America over the past 60 years and thus in a lot of ways it's the story of how was the world impacted by all of this over mm -hmm. the past so this is a huge story so Adam said you know I think this feels like we should have a huge symphony and he said why don't you write a symphony <laughs> so okay. so actually i was like great you know so Dr. Patel? that was <laughs> so this was the idea of like oh well okay well what is the sound of that symphony you know yeah. but it felt right away like there needed to be a dissonance in this story because I think we can all imagine what a big American symphony might sound like. I think we can all imagine what a heroic kind of a, you know, what's a hero's journey sound like. Mm -hmm. But this film is something different. This isn't that story. This is a story that has a dissonance, that has many forces that are working behind the scenes. And so every musical idea that's in Vice actually has a dissonance where there are these kind of, you know, let's say like wrong notes, where there might be a theme of the notes that are all in the scale and this is the theme, but I'm purposely putting in notes that feel wrong. So that there's always this kind of rubbing or, you know, yeah. dissonance that you're sort of like, what, is, what exactly is yeah. that? Is that really, you know? Because <laughs> yeah. we're, and it, but it's, but it has to be subtle. It can't be too overt.
we're not creating a caricature. This is a serious approach to this. And actually, it was very clear to me early on that the music had to be very serious. You know, not only is it a serious story, but we have to take the journey seriously. And if, you know, and if I was not doing that, I think emotionally it would have been harder, you know, certainly for me, it would have yeah. been harder to engage with that story. It's that kind of thing going, this happened, this is exactly. this is real. The way that he's made this film is so clever and the, the kind of detours he takes you on throughout the, the story is very, very clever. Exactly, um, yeah. And so I can't imagine it was an easy thing to work on and to come to the decisions on things. I also heard that they recorded a musical number that didn't yes. make it in the final cut. That's true. Is it? Were you, is did true. you work on that as well? I wrote the musical. Oh my God, amazing. And uh, it's a, it was it was a beautiful sequence, which I believe will be on the Blu-ray oh, as a bonus feature. I think so. But you know, what's, I think the, the musical speaks to a bigger thing, which is, you know, it's like we were saying before, that it's all about the movie. Yeah. It's all about making the best movie possible. What is that most powerful experience that we can create uh, for the story and for the audience? And on its own, the musical was really fun. We had a blast <laughs> making it. And uh, are they all singing they, then? Are they all? Uh, pe many people are singing. <laughs> actually, actually, I mean, you'll you'll see when okay. it comes out. I don't want to spoil anything. Okay, but, it's a spoil but you'll it, see. Yeah. There is singing in it. There is singing oh in God. it. But what was interesting was, on its own, it worked. And yet, when you put it in context with the film, films have their own internal logic. Yeah. The movie is kind of telling you what it needs in a way. Mm -hmm. And Adam is very, very serious about uh, screening the film for himself. It's not so much to get an audience's direct feedback. It's actually more like when you sit in a, in a room full of people, you feel the energy. The energy. Yeah, totally. And, and, it's, and that is, you know, and I've, I've really learned so much from Adam in seeing that because he'll go in and within 10 minutes he knows the feeling. He yeah. knows if things are working, if they aren't. He has ideas immediately of where he will go. So I think when we were screening with the musical, we ourselves couldn't quite figure out what's the perfect moment for it, how does it flow, mm -hmm. and films are this big, big jigsaw puzzle of ideas. You know, there's so many possible ways that things can connect, and Adam really tried a lot of different places, you know, and ways to <laughs> yeah. make music work, but ultimately it felt like the story and the, the, the power of the story was, was, was more there 
without, without a musical. It. So, yeah. you know, that's the thing you have to, you know, it, and, and I think it's true for, for any piece I write for a score. It's not about the piece. Yeah. It's about the movie. So no matter what I'm writing, mm. if it doesn't feel like it's exactly right and connecting, then it shouldn't be there. Did you, either of you have any reference points for Vice in terms of the kind of sound, you know, you talk about that kind of symphony sort of idea of it. And you know, there wasn't any specific reference. I mean, I think, you know, you know, as a classical pianist and, you know, having having studied a lot of the history of classical, I mean, there are, you know, if you look at the epic symphonic works of the 19th century, I mean, symphonies got pretty huge. So, you know, I mean, if you go back to like the size of, you know, there's the many. biggest like Mahler, for example, I mean, there's, you know, these are huge orchestras, you know, and we did have a, a very, very large, you know, orchestra. So, uh, which was recorded here, by the way. Uh, it was yeah. recorded here. We recorded it at Abbey Road. Abbey in the Road. Yeah, yeah. And we worked at British Grove as well. So we had the London musicians were just incredible. Is that a nice part of the process for you yes. when you get to do that? Oh, that it's a dream. It. It's a dream, especially when you're working Because you conduct with such... as well. You, I did, You do the yeah. whole thing. Yes. I, I was just talking to someone the other day about this, how like it's almost hard sometimes when you're conducting your own music for the first time. Like you've written this music for, you know, I was working on it for about a year and you're writing this music and you get up on the podium and you start conducting and, you know, when you're surrounded by these incredible musicians, it's almost hard to keep focused because you start listening to it and you're almost overwhelmed by these emotions. And I'm like, what bar am I in? Wait a second. Hold on. I have to focus. Because <laughs> you just sort of want to listen for a sec, yeah. you know, because it's so, you know, this, this huge sound is sort of enveloping you. But, uh, you know, there, so there wasn't any specific reference. I think there, you know, if we imagine just the history of, of, of 20th century music, American yeah. music, American sounds, I mean, there's John Philip Sousa, there's marches, there's, you know, there's massive symphonic music that was written. And uh, 
But there wasn't a particular zone I was looking for yeah. because actually the film itself explores lots of different genres in a sense. You know, I mean, I'm writing. There's music I wrote, and that was a big band sound. There's a hip. There's a huge hip hop track in the early 2000s, yeah. which is literally, you know, a a evolution of the the sort of counterpoint theme I'd written for Cheney that you heard at the beginning of the film. So there are a lot of different styles. So it wasn't like there was a style or yeah. anything. It was more, I think, this concept of a large, like almost a wall of huge. symphonic sound. Yes, yeah. exactly. I had the pleasure of chatting to him when he was here for the big short. And oh man, I could listen to him talk forever. He's just so interesting. Yeah, what a brain. Adam's incredible. Adam has the most wide-ranging intellectual curiosity. I mean, he's a voracious reader. Mm. Um, and I think what's fascinating with him, too, is he combines both this very, very, like, not just adept, but, I mean, brilliant comedic and improvisational impulse with serious learning and research and discipline in mm. his in his intellectual approach. And that's something that you don't often find, coupled with the fact that he loves movies yeah. and is the, the filmmaker in the truest sense. So it's all of those elements yeah. mixed together. And, you know, he's he's a, a joy to be around. I mean, he is, uh, he is an amazing conversationalist, like you were saying. We also had the absolute pleasure of having Valerie Farris and Jonathan Dayton on oh the show Oh, my as God, well. amazing. And we talked quite in depth about... Battle of the Sexes and, oh, and UD camp into LA in their editing offices. I did having your little room. I did. <laughs> I had my little room. my little room with no windows <laughs> <laughs> for three or four months. I was there. there, but that I had such a wonderful experience working with them. I think again, you know, I've had this wonderful opportunity to work on these different films, and each film, my hope is to try to create a different musical landscape or language. With Valerie and Jonathan, it was about sort of this idea of, you know, what is the sound of the 70s in a way, yeah. but doing it in a way where it didn't, you know, I wasn't trying to write 70s music. I remember we started with this idea of, um, what if I wrote like classical, you know, a classical kind of score, but if it was on like 70s rock instruments, <laughs> that was the starting point. But as we started doing that, 
it you know it, again it's it's similar in some ways to you know what happened with Beale Street where there were certain sounds that it felt like the film was looking for yeah it, with Battle of the Sexes the first thing that felt like it needed was woodwinds so I had the electric guitar and drum electric bass piano and then I added sort of oboes and clarinets and it just felt right yeah Eventually, it just became clear that, especially for the actual battle of the sexes, this massive, yeah. you know, sports spectacle, we needed a full orchestra there. <laughs> yeah. kind of a combination of all of these sounds uh, put together and I remember one of the fun things we did was anytime you see Bobby Riggs oh, yeah. I was playing uh, on this very small upright piano and, and anytime kind of waltz and there's exactly there's yeah, a little bit of a yeah. three four kind yeah. of almost jazz waltz And whenever uh, 
there was a piano with Billie Jean, it was a nine-foot Steinway concert grand. So there was this, instrument. they each had their that own instrument, brilliant. and she is this, you know, it's this magnificent sound. She is yeah. the, you know, She's our the victor. Best. Yeah, and she is, honestly, I got a chance to meet Billie Jean yeah. King and spend some time with her, and she is just the most inspirational yeah. person. Last year, I also worked on HBO's show Succession, and so I am about to do season two this year. And I've also started talking to Barry about his Underground Railroad oh, project as well. So that's exciting. Very early stages. Yeah, you know, um, those are some of the next things. Thank you so much for coming back. <laughs> thank you so hopefully, much for having me. Hopefully, you'll come back for a third. I would love to. I'd be honored to. <laughs> Nicholas, thank you, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Nicholas Brutel, that's the theme music from the HBO series Succession, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the supremely gifted and utterly adorable composer. My huge thanks to Nicholas for taking the time to talk us through his art. If Beale Street Could Talk is still showing in cinemas with a home entertainment release not far off. His score, meanwhile, is available via our good friends at Lakeshore Records who were very helpful in providing us with the unusual version of Blue and Green that features in the movie. Best of luck to Nicholas at the Oscars too. We obviously don't know the results at the time of recording. 
If you want to hear our first conversation with Nicholas, head to iTunes, Spotify or edithbowman.com where you'll also be able to listen to the interview with Barry Jenkins amongst many others and please subscribe to the podcast too. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do keep spreading the word if you like what you hear. Now next up is a total legend of cinema in the shape of Thelma Schoonmaker, who is Martin Scorsese's editor extraordinaire. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.